From high above beautiful Genoa, New York, this is Disaster Tales. My host today is uh, Barb Lonsky, of course. We're sitting in her home near Genoa, New York, and we're going to be talking about what today? We're going to be talking about two mine disasters in Pennsylvania, the Avondale Mine Disaster, which occurred in 19, oh, 1869, sorry, <laughs> 1986, no, 1689, and the Dar Mine Disaster, which occurred in 1907, also several other disasters surrounding that. Right. Just Let's let's go back real quick, and it's not 1689, it's 1869. <laughs> You'll have to excuse my dyslexia. 1869. <laughs> so what happened in 1869 was there was a mine near Plymouth, Pennsylvania, and it was called the Avondale Mine. And they had been working that when they first started the mine. They had been, they just dug a tunnel into the side of the mountain trying hoping to find coal and once they found the coal they started doing an actual shaft and in those days shafts were were sunk and then they were they were supported by wooden trusses and separated by wooden brattices or barriers doors and when they brought the coal to the top by way of a pulley they put them in what they called a breaker. And in this mine, there was two breakers. It would actually break the coal into smaller pieces. And the second breaker would break the coal into manageable pieces that you could put in your fireplace. And so the breakers were made of wood, except for the teeth that broke up the coal. And these breakers were run by boilers, which were set about 100 feet away. And there was a flue that went from the boilers up to the breakers and the shaft that went down to where the miners were. So it was almost like an L shape. The shaft for the for the boiler was a horizontal shaft and the the shaft for the coal transport was a vertical shaft. Right. Okay. Well, the it the shaft from the boiler tipped up a little from the okay. boiler to the breaker because hot air rises. Right. I should know I'm full of that, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> so anyways there's and also the other thing that um in the structure of this mine is that when you went down on the little elevator that's run by a pulley there was also a stable down there for mules so they brought the mules down there and the hay for them and the mules would pull the carts back and forth from where the miners were working to where the lift was so that they could unload their coal and send it up to the breakers mm -hmm. That makes sense so far. Yeah, there? it does to me. Yep. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this time in this mine, there was there was men and boys working, and the youngest boy there was twelve years old, and the oldest boy, on minor, was seventeen years old. No child labor laws then. Nope, not at all. So, children, count yourselves lucky. Um, I did find a com I did find a contemporary source that went over everything that happened. So the first thing that happened was the man who was operating the boiler, who was named Alexander Weir, he was an engineer and he had been startled by 
the noise rushing up the shaft, it's, and the quote is, with great fury, with a sound not unlike that of an explosion or a poof. That's it, a, must have been a pretty loud poof. Yeah, well, and <clears throat> it would be the sound, you know, like when a fire gets mm -hmm. really big all of a sudden. And so, said so rapidly did it carry on its, its work, he was merely enabled to blow out the whistle and arrange matters to prevent the boiler from exploding. So he had a he had a warning whistle that he could blow, um, that that was probably attached to the boiler. I'm sure it was a steam mm -hmm. whistle, and then um, he managed to to shut off the boiler or set it into something to where it wouldn't it would uh, stop creating pressure, and then he had to make a really rapid exit so fast that in the report it says he was not able to secure his hat. He had to leave hatless. Wow. That's pretty quick egress. <laughs> it is. One witness who was outside of the boiler area said it looked like a plane of fire running up at an angle of about 33 degrees towards the hill above, which is where the breaker and the shaft were. And after it accomplished that distance, you could see it shoot up in immense cloud, just a big plume of cloud and and fire and then the smoke just covered everything and the first thought of the mine was to remove the blasting powder from the magazines which was probably a very good idea right i'm sure the blasting powder wasn't stored too awfully close to the boilers so they made sure and got those out of the way the immediate response was they formed a bucket brigade and if you've ever seen or been in a bucket brigade you'll know that they're almost completely ineffective. The loses a lot of water in the translation, I it think. It does. Yeah. <laughs> what you do is you, you take a bucket and you fill it with water and you hand it to the next person and you hand it to the next person. And they hand it they hand it hand over hand until somebody is close enough to the fire to throw the water on the fire with a bucket. And so you can imagine if you have a huge fire like that, how ineffective a bucket brigade is a bucket brigade is really gonna be. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, the, there was fire engines, bleh. fire engines got there from Wilkes-Barre, um, probably because they saw the fire. Right. And. Well, the explosion, I'm sure, was felt right. for a distance. And seen. Mm -hmm. So when the fire engines got there, they started pumping water towards the fire. But, um, it took firefighters from another area to come over and they went up above the mine and constructed a waterway from a stream at, that actually sluiced water in, directly into the mine shaft. But that's so labor intensive, it should have, it probably took way longer than it was. It took know. quite a long time, yeah. yeah. So after they finally got the fire out, there was a series of people going, volunteering to go in and recon, reconnoiter the mine and see if there was any survivors. And the first man, and this, and he's very famous in the area for doing this, his name was Par Charles Bartu. And he was from a grand tunnel colliery nearby, a different coal company. A colliery is a coal manufacturing plant. Right. Just terminology there. Mm-hmm. And for, uh, he, he, he was going to go down the shaft, but before he went down, they were going to make sure it was safe. So what they did was they took a, a lantern and a dog and put them on on the uh, elevator 
and lowered them down for about 15 minutes and brought them back up. And when they brought him back up, the dog was alive, but the fire was out, which could have mean, meant several things. Uh, but mostly the fire was could have been out because of the motion of going up and down in the shaft. The dog could have made it, it with its out. tail. Right, know. yeah. So there's any number of things. But the fact that the light was still was not burning could have been indicative of the fact that there might not be oxygen down there. Or enough to keep a fire lit. Because fires consume the oxygen in the environment. Oxygen accelerates a fire. It doesn't cause a fire, but it accelerates it. The more oxygen it has available, the hotter and faster the fire will burn. That's right. You got it. So after that happened, Charles Vartu went down. 14 minutes after he disappeared, he again reached the surface and was immediately plied with questions. He, he reported that about halfway down the shaft, he found obstructions that prevented further descent. One of them was a pump that had been broken loose by the explosion, and it rested on a stick of timber and other obstructions, so there was kind of a mess in the shaft. And he didn't want to go down there and then not be able to get back up again if he found unlivable conditions below that blockage. Mm -hmm. Vartu said there, were, oh, there was an opening large enough to go through, but he was afraid to do it, thinking that the debris might fall on him or he could get stuck down there. So they sent two people down, and they cleared away the blockage. He reported that the bratis in the shaft was not much burned, and the air was perfectly good and not too hot. Once he made that report, two men went down, and they removed the debris from the area so that it was a clear... So the shaft was clear. The second set of responders that went down were Charles Jones of Plymouth and Stephen Evans of Nottingham Shaft, which was a different mine. Nine minutes later, the men emerged gasping for fresh air. They reported there was 70 or 80 yards into the gangway, and they found two dead mules as they progressed. So the mules had run from the fire mm -hmm. and had, had suffocated. They finally came to a closed door that they pounded on, waiting for answering sounds from the men who might be behind it, but no sound came, and they felt compelled to return, noticing that clouds of sulfur were pouring through the crevice of the woodwork of that door, and fearing that the sulfur would overpower them in their partially exhausted condition. They also found another gangway running in a different direction, and fresh air appeared to be rushing into that. So Mr. Jones said he wanted to go ahead and keep going down that second gangway, but his companion, either because he was exhausted or just didn't think it was a good idea, said, I'm not going to do that. And Mr. Jones said, okay, well, I'm not going to do it by myself, and they went back up. So now we know that the, there's, there was a barrier between some of the men and that there were toxic fumes coming out of the compartment where the men were likely trapped. Right, and there was fresh air going into another gangway. Another group went down at 9.15 a.m. and they started working and everybody was ready for the quick renewal of mine explorations. At the same time, a meeting of the miners was convened in the woods nearby in which James George, an old and experienced miner and president of the Plymouth branch of the Miners Union presided. So just before three o'clock, a party went down and penetrated as far as the stable there were two dead bodies found in horrible condition, which made me think probably it was either 
explosive injuries or burns. Mm -hmm. Then they went to where the Bratis was, where they had had the sulfur coming out, and they found 67 men and boys, and they were they were in positions that that told the the rescuers that at, at some point they had survived long enough to to do things like one of them put his face down and another one there was a man who had three sons and he had one under each arm and the other one was laying on his chest and another man was there with his son and had his arm around his son and there was a couple people who were in positions that indicated they were probably praying and there was also someone had tried to build another bratis out of stone and and some of the wood that had that was in the area so they had time to realize they were going to die and then what and then an agonizing did. thing to to know that your demise is it's there and the thing is the 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 gases and the mixture of fumes from the combustion but also from the fact that there was a, a great deal of coal dust and gases being released through the mining process created the black damp right yeah. and the black damp it, it's it's an asphyxiant. It's it's um, asphyxiant. I'm sorry. Yeah. It reduces the available oxygen content, mm -hmm. and this is um, black damp. Is typically consists of nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and water vapor. So the nitrogen, like when a person gets the bends, what happens is the nitrogen takes the place of the oxygen on the red blood cell, and so the combination of gases actually asphyxiate you or cause you to suffocate at the cellular level. And that's why, you know, we talked about the bloating and the oozing of the, mm -hmm. the, the person they, they found. And that could be because they were suffocated at the cellular level. Because people with carbon monoxide poisoning and, and the bends or nitrogen um, poisoning generally have a very red appearance because the body has replaced those red blood cells with the toxic right. gases. And, and there were, a lot of the bodies were described as being very red in the face or the entire body was red, mm -hmm. which would indicate the carbon monoxide kind of poisoning and the black damp. Right. The workers had tried to save themselves because the rescuers saw a bratis built of stone and coal. I'm sorry, it wasn't wood. Mm -hmm. Indicating the men tried to protect themselves from the fire. And men in the mine died from inhalation of carbonic acid gas. And they don't know how long they lived after the fire began, but probably not more than four hours. And the thing is, a lot of times in those situations, especially in mining communities, they have um, they they write notes, they write last letters, mm -hmm. and put them in containers and and things so that the the family can know what their last moments were, which is a agonizing mm -hmm. thing to have that kind of information. So the identification procedure was. Every time they bought, brought a, every time they brought a body out of the tunnel, it was deposited on the ground in front of the jury because they had a jury already convened, and the jury then viewed the remains, and the people who brought them out swore as to the fact that they had brought them from the mine and what their identity was. Once they did the identity, the name and residence were announced to the assembled by a man named Mr. James George of Plymouth. And he was the president of the miners' union. So they'd bring up the bodies, they'd identify them, and then this man would go stand out in front of the crowd and say, this is Joe Johnson. Right. And, 
And I think something I read was that they had what they called identifier tags. They had two metal tags mm -hmm. that when the person went down into the mine, they gave one tag to a mine boss who hung it on a board, and then they kept the other tag on their body mm -hmm. so that if something happened and they needed to be identified, they would have the ability to identify them. So they were like dog tags. Right. Yeah. So, and then... Once the name was announced, the body was conveyed to the dead house or morgue to be cleaned up and claimed by relatives or friends. So they found bodies. The group recorded the names, description of the body, and the family left behind. So they, they said, this is J. John Jones or whatever. He is survived by his wife and two children or three mm -hmm. children uh, or there was one young man in the in the mine disaster I talk about who was the sole support of his family. He was 16 years old, and so mm -hmm. he would have been named, and then his family would have been his father and his mother or whatever. Right, and the, and the, and some of the people in this report were like the, a 16-year-old a whose parents were in Boston, and one man that was survived by his wife and five girls. Mm -hmm. and And because of the way they set up mining towns... Um, the mines owned the houses and the store and everything else. So once the miner had passed away, they had to make room for a new miner, and that meant that they had to send the family right. away. And I think about, you know, the, the old snidely whiplash, you know, going and evicting people. Yes. That that's where that type of character I can't pay the rent. Out. You can't you pay, must the, pay rent. the rent. You must leave, you know. Mm -hmm. And they would put people out in the street, and if they didn't have family to help them, a lot of times the the benefit that they would get as like say a widow or a surviving person was either not there or it was a long time forthcoming mhm mm it was and uh, in this in this time and more so in later times <clears throat> excuse me in this time and more so in later times there were mine the mine union would have a widows and orphan fund kind of thing. And they would also, in a famous disaster like this, they would also get contributions from around the country. And one of the things that the people there did was set up a committee to take donations to help the survivors. Mm -hmm. And I think you also have to take into consideration in this time period in the 18, late 1860s, women were not in the workplace. It was not... A, if a woman didn't have a man to support her, mm -hmm. then she had to really, you know, go to... She could do laundry. Right. There she were very few things that she was able to do if she wasn't... Yeah. Have to go to a poorhouse. <clears throat> that, that would be the other thing. Right. So the minister that that did the service and and organized the donations committee, he described the event as death hitting like a clap of rolling thunder. And I thought that was very, very apt between mm -hmm. the fact that it was so rapid and the fact that you could hear rolling thunder when it blew up. Right, right. The disaster left 72 widows and 158 orphans. And I have some of the testimony from the inquest. Dr. G.H. Wilson of Plymouth, he said the cause of death in the men was inhalation of carbonic acid gas that produced asphyxia. There were some theories that the that they tried to put forth to take the blame off the mine, mm. the mine owners. Yes. One of them was 
that there was a stable man who carried hay down to the stable where the mules were. And they said he was wearing a lit lamp. He caught the, the hay on fire and the, the fire started in the mine. Um, and the other testimony that came out said, no, that's just not what happened. They actually saw the man going down there with the hay and he did not have his lamp lit. Mm -hmm. Now there was no firefighting equipment on site and the coal workers union was very active. What they found finally was that this shaft had only one opening and there was other shafts in the area that only had one opening and there was one close enough to where the miners in this mine could hear the drills from the other mine. They were like just a couple of hundred feet apart. And one of the things that came out of this inquest was that if you had connected those mines, those men would have been able to get out. Right. And I think that, you know, the the practices at that point, and I know the result of, of you know, a disaster like this, they create new legislation and things are put in place to protect the workers. But the bottom line is always the financial. They always do what is, you know, financially beneficial for the business and with little regard to human life and human suffering. Yeah, there's and and the the reasons the owner gave for not having a second hole was that well, it costs an awful lot of money to set in another mine. You have to take all that time to put in the second exit. Mm -hmm. And that costs money and we didn't want to spend that money. So we just left it as one. Mm. So the Bradises and the guides, the wood that was down in the mine, were burned 20 to 30 feet from the bottom of the shaft. So that fire went up, but it also went down mm -hmm. and did a lot of damage there. The engineer at Avondale during the inquest said, there was a danger of the flue catching on fire in the packing and waste around the pumps at the bottom of the shaft. He first saw smoke rising he first saw smoke raising the cam canvas over the pump rod. He tried to get the signal from below and send men down to investigate. In a minute or two, the fire burst out of the explosion of powder through the corner of the engine house where the pump rod comes up. Powder being? Coal powder. Correct. Yeah. So it's like a fuel air explosion. Right. A bloody. No, not a bloody. <laughs> <laughs> Thought it was dangerous because he found it so hot in the pump shaft that he couldn't pack the pumps unless the doors were open. He said his father had built that furnace and he thought it was safe. He says, I don't remember ever telling him it was unsafe. He never saw any sparks from the flu. He said, it might have been sulfur more than coal that prevented my staying in the pump shaft. He didn't know what the inside boss said when he was told that he considered the flu to be unsafe says he could have stood greater heat at the bottom of the air shaft. I'm if sorry. the air had been pure. Thank you. Yeah. He thought that he could have had stood greater heat at the bottom of the air shaft if the air had been pure, so not with the sulfur in it, just clear. And in answer to a question from Mr. Evans, the witness said, it seems intended to bring out condemnation of the system of mining with but one outlet, and I fully agree with condemning that system. Right. So they had the solution available, they just failed to take it. Right, and, and there was nobody who was demanding it, so... and it, it, Well, I think that the people, you know, the families, I know in the disaster that, that I will be talking about, 
the families knew that the mine was in, in bad shape, that the ventilation was poor. Mm-hmm. And they rallied and, and even, you know, tried to, to get the second ventilation shaft and no one listened. It just fell on deaf ears. And by the time of yours, having a second ventilation shaft was law. Was law, right. So the jury verdict is that the cause of death of, and they named Palmer Steel, but included all the other people who died, was the exhaustion of atmospheric air in the presence of abundance of, was the exhaustion of atmospheric air and the presence of the abundance of carbonic acid gases. This was caused by the burning of the head house and breaker, destroying the air courses leading to the, from the mine through the shaft. So the air was not able to, to give a good exchange, and so it just built up and then it caused the explosion. Right. The fire originated from the furnace that was at the mine, taking effect on the wood bratis and the upcast air course leading from the bottom of the shaft to the head house. And the head house was the place where they had the breakers. Right. And it was set right on top of the mine. Right. He would, they would recommend that there be two places for ingress and egress and a more practical means of ventilation so that it would render a greater security to the life of the miners under any similar incident. Because they had, in some of, the, some of these mines, they had what was called a fan house, which was a separate shaft for just ventilation. And mm-hmm. they had a big, big building on top of it with a fan that ran continuously circulating mm-hmm. the air, which keeps that coal dust and the, and the black damp, you know, moving out of the mine and getting fresh air into the mine. So the result of this was that the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in 1870 created the first inspection law for anthracite mines. And anthracite is the hard coal. It's very efficient burning. There's also a soft coal, mm-hmm. and that one is a little bit dirtier to burn. The law was extended to, to bituminous coal mines in 1878, which is the softer coal. Other states followed suit with their own laws, and through 1880, the horrific rate of fatalities in the coal mines started to decline. <laughs> now, we were talking about the relief funds. Um, there was a committee that was created at the site to collect donations, and they got about $700. But this was one of the first disasters where there was a global outpouring of financial assistance to the families of the victims. So it was coming from all over different countries. Mm-hmm. Another result of the fire was enacted by the Pennsylvania General Assembly of Legislation establishing safety regulations for the coal mining industry and making Pennsylvania the first state to enact that kind of legislation. The laws mandated things like there have to be two entrances to an underground mine. Mm-hmm. This disaster also called this disaster also caused thousands of miners to join the Working Men's Benevolent Association, one of the first unions to represent coal miners in the United States. Because there was continuing labor issues and safety issues in the anthracite coal fields, uh, an organization was created by people who wanted to make the mines safer. They called themselves the Molly Maguires. They're primarily Irish miners, and they were terrorists. Fighting Irish. Mm-hmm. They would, <laughs> they would set things on fire and blow things up. And finally, they caught them and tried them, and they executed twenty of them. And the last thing is that, with all the money that was collected, the people that needed the money didn't get it for four years after the disaster. 
four years of, can you imagine being a widow with four or five children waiting for the assistance from the coal mines for four years? And having been displaced and everything else that went and, along with it. And got to keep your children fed mm -hmm. and everything else. Yeah, it's that, it was inexcusable. And there's a lot of things that we take for granted now that people died for. Mm -hmm. These laws wouldn't have been in effect unless this many people died and brought attention to it. Right. And the creation of things like OSHA and different agencies of the government that enforce safety, you know, the Bureau of Mines yeah. is one. Which were brought into play because of all these disasters and the great loss of life. And there was a lot of <laughs> loss yeah. of life. There was. Well, and over the period between... I had that up here. Let me look. Mm -hmm. Between 1839 and 1914, there was over 53,000 coal miners killed. Hmm. That's that's a lot. and it's And most of them were preventable. Yes. So I'm going to tell you right now that we're up for a treat at the end of this. Instead of a disaster tip, we're going to have a disaster song about the mine that Barbara is about to talk about. And she played the guitar and sang this song herself. So that will be your treat at the end. You'll be able to hear her sing this song about the Dar Mine disaster. So you may want to shut it off before the disaster tip. No, no, no. <laughs> All right. So the Dar Mine disaster... It occurred in 19, December 19th, 1907. And as I go through this, I'll, I'll note some things regarding disasters in the, in the month of December in 1907 in the coal mining community. The Dar Mine was in Van Meter, Rostraver Township, Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. And it was near Smithton, PA, so it was just a little bit south of Pittsburgh. It killed 239 men and boys, and it occurred on December 19, 1907. It is ranked as the, the worst coal mining disaster in Pennsylvania history. Now, there were other coal mine disasters that occurred, one particularly in um, West Virginia that had a greater death toll, but this was the highest death toll for Pennsylvania. The mine originally opened in 1850 under the Osborne and Sager Coal Company. It was a single shaft mine, and then it was purchased in 1903 by the Pittsburgh Coal Company. They had expanded the mine to the point where the shaft was, the mine was over 10,000 feet in length. And then it also had side shafts and what they call manways, which is where you move in and out of the mine. But there was only one entrance, a main port entrance. Which by then was... It was against the law totally at that point. Illegal. Yeah, because at that point they were supposed to have two... Um, two entrances or more. So all the air entered the mine through the main entrance and the manway. So because of the, that massive expansion, the fact that they increased the size of the mine by so much, up to 10,000 feet, um, they really needed to have more ventilation in the mine. And the mine was known to be very um, gaseous, and they called it you know, like a swamp, basically. So they only had a single fan mouth right near the opening of the mine, um, they, uh, a fan house, excuse me, which is where they place a large fan inside a building and then it continually circulates the air. But because there was no way for air to enter in, it was a one-way ventilation system. So the air was pulled out, but there wasn't anything to replace it. And so the mine tended to be very filled with um, gases and coal dust. 
And during that time, they used what was called an open flame lamp. So it was like a small oil lamp that was the standard for coal mining. But in 1902, they introduced what was called a carbide lamp. And the carbide lamp was also an open flame lamp, but it was contained within uh, like a housing and you could adjust the, the height and size of the flame. And so those were said to be the most safe at that point in time. You know, later on when they got the headlamps, the electric headlamps, that definitely was much safer, but at least the carbide lamp was safer than the open style flame lamp. Um, but the problem was that the Dar mine did not upgrade, even though they were had been available for over five years, they did not upgrade the, the headlamp the lamps because it was too expensive. So here again we start to see the pattern of, you know, the bottom line financially, which sadly happens in so many of these disasters that we cover. In late summer of 1907, William Campbell was hired as a mine supervisor. He made it very clear to the uh, the mine owners that he was not happy with what he found when he went in and inspected the mine. He reported that in the outer regions, which were further out in the shaft areas, that there was, um, they, they dubbed it a swamp because the area was filled with gas, coal dust, the air was dry, there was no air flow, so it was like an accident waiting to happen. Um, he pushed to urgently dig a new ventilation shaft. And so that was in the summer when he first got to the mine. He pushed and pushed and pushed. Well, finally, um, although this information is a little bit on the sketchy side, they were supposed to begin work on the new ventilation shaft on December 20th, which seems to me a little bit convenient since the disaster happened on the 19th. Um, they did find his body in the main shaft with four other bodies of workers who um, were fairly close to the pit opening, but because of the speed and the force of the explosion, they didn't survive. Now, the, the community in which the Van Meter, the mine was, was called Van Meter, and it was a small community. It, it housed the people who worked for the railroad. It housed the people who um, owned the mine, but the, the mining community was actually across the river, <clears throat> excuse me, in a town called Jacobs Creek. And Jacobs Creek was only accessible to the mine by a ferry. Uh, it was a cable ferry. It carried about five or six men. And every day those men went to work and had to pay five cents to cross the river to get to their job, which is just another blatant mm -hmm. financial blah. A company town, company yeah. store, yeah. company ferry. Mm. Yeah, so their housing was owned by the mine. The, the, the store that they were able to frequent was owned by the mine, and now the five cents for the ferry every time they crossed the river. And so they went across the, now I don't know, Yahogany River. And at that place, it was fairly wide. Yohiogany. Yohiogany or, yeah. Something like that. The, that river. <laughs> and um, so, but there was like 400 men who worked in the mines and they worked shifts and they were employed from different countries in Europe, from Italy and Hungary. And also there were people who were from France and different countries in Europe and then American U.S. citizens also. But the only access to the Van Meter township or the place where the mine was is was across the river. And so that really hindered um, the response to the disaster because people just couldn't get there. Right. If you can't get if you can only get five firefighters over there right. and then you got to get their equipment over there. Right. Yeah. So it was definitely, the access was very poor. Now, 
you know, in every in any disaster, we we hear about stories of miraculous people being, you know, prevented from being killed when they might have been. Not in the one I just talked about. No. But. <laughs> yeah. But um, in this particular disaster, there were several people who were spared due to different circumstances. One man, his name was Patsy Menard, went on a sandy, which I guess is a word for going on a drunk the a night bender. before. A bender. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, but he was not sufficiently co- recovered to go to work that day. Hangover. So he, he had a hangover, so his hangover saved him from dying in the mine. Albert Padger went to a dance that night, the night before, and overslept. His brother and father were in the mine, and they were killed. 16-year-old Joe Sharpenberg perished in the mine. He was the only provider for his ailing father, who was like 66 years old, and I think he had black lung Probably. from the coal mining, mm-hmm. and then his, the rest of his family. And it tell it shares a personal thing that only a few weeks earlier he had been out choosing a Christmas tree with some of his friends, enjoying the time in the hills above the mine. And it was put in the shed, and it was never used, because this happened just before Christmas. That's just sad. And it just compounds the the sadness, like mm-hmm. you said. You know, it's sad, but it just compounds it when you think you know these people had lives, but unfortunately, the greed associated with running some of these these operations didn't take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. His married brother, Frank, came out of the mine just 10 minutes before the explosion. So he was spared because mm-hmm. he had come out of the mine. George Colbert and his two sons, Henry, are in the mine. They died in the mine. John and Henry. John and Henry, excuse me. <laughs> and they were survived by a sister and a mother. Um, Salmon Hawk and son Arthur perished in the mine. And the on- they were the only men in their family. And then... These men, of course, were all from Jacob's Creek. What happened was um, on December 17th and 18th, the mine was closed due to the celebration of the Greek, or Greek Orthodox holiday of St. Nicholas. And so there, many of these Hungarians um, that, and Europeans who were employed by the mine were of the Greek Orthodox faith. And so they took time off. The mine reopened on the 19th, but because um, not the 19th, based on the Julian calendar, was the Feast of St. Nicholas. 200 of the Russian Orthodox mine workers were not present at work. And so that saved their their lives, but also reduced the death toll because they were... But the, the problem was that there were several people who had survived a disaster um, only a few weeks earlier at the Naomi mine, which then closed, and they came to work at the Dar mine, and they were replacing those Russian workers who weren't there, and so they perished. They, you know, were saved from one disaster only wow. to succumb. So, so what we've got here is we've got the mine owners give them two days off, mm-hmm. but their feast of Saint Nicholas is the next day. Right. So they go ahead and and don't go to work. Right. And go and and celebrate Saint Nicholas feast day. Mm-hmm. People from the Naomi mine come to take their place. People who survived the disaster at the Naomi mine, and then they go in here and they die in this disaster. Right. It's, just, it's a tragic thing. You know, the, the, the Russian Orthodox group didn't even have their own church. They rented a church from a Presbyterian congregation. And so <laughs> the, it was packed, you know, 200 mm-hmm. people in the, in the church. But, um, yeah, so it was just, you know, the, the irony and the different things that happen in these disasters are just amazing. So now there was an open flame that 
caused the, the problem. There was an area in the mine that had been cordoned off by the fire boss. The fire boss was someone who assessed the, the mine for safety and air quality. And so during that per period of time, the fire boss had, had cordoned off a section of the mine because of high levels of methane. And, um, and so he, the person went into that area of the mine with an open flame, and that's what started the, mm -hmm. the explosion. That was the fire boss that went in? No, not somebody? the fire boss. It okay. was another worker. The area was cordoned off, but they went through the barrier and, and went into that section. Well, and you, and you got to remember here that these mines were being built with the room and pillar system, mm -hmm. which means that they would, they would cut out all the coal, leave pillars of coal in the middle mm -hmm. to hold up the, the cave. And so you had nothing but fuel there. Right, all flammable material. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because it, it's interesting to note that eight of the nine disasters in the recent years that claimed over a thousand lives, that seven of those eight disasters occurred in November, December, and January. So there was a, a researcher named Dr. Brashear who, who did inquiry into the different disasters and air quality and things like that. And he postulates that the barometric pressure and the hydrometric pressure, so the barometric pressure is the pressure of of the, the atmospheres of air. And so in the cold months, in the cold weather months, because warm air rises, cold air settles. And so what it does is it presses and compresses the gases in the mine so that there's a higher concentration of those gases within the mine. And in those three months, that exertion of downward pressure on the gases prevented it from adequately dissipating, which it, it because of the the design of the mine and the fact that there was not a secondary air um, air shaft that they could pump the gases out, mm -hmm. it just increased and intensified the amount of pressure of gases and toxic so it, air. So it didn't just keep the gases in the mine, it actually compressed them. Right. So that then when they were lit, they would have a bigger, a higher space combustion to rate to explode in. Yeah, because that heat, the expansion caused by the heat, it, if the colder and the, the more concentrated it is, the faster the combustion occurs when the heat's added. So this led the scientific community to believe that the explosions in the mountain chain, because there was a, several explosions starting in, this, even in the month of December of 1907, um, from the, the explosion in Alabama, and I'll, I'll give you a list of all of those things as we go on, but that led the scientific community to believe that the explosions in that particular mountain chain, the Appalachian chain, um, and through the western part of Pennsylvania, which also included the Monaga, uh, the Monoaga. Monaga. Monaga, okay. Horror, <laughs> my disaster, which killed many more people, um, that, were, that was created by a fissure in the Earth's crust, so where the gases were escaping and then the compounding of the the pressure, the cold weather holding the, the gases down. That just, is interesting. Yeah, it created like a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. So mountain, you know, the mining in that particular mountain chain must have released those excess gases and created the instability that released all those toxic fumes into the mines. And it's just like with fracking, you know, the, the practice of fracking where they go in and they hydrofrack, they put in liquid to open up gas pockets and so releases it for harvesting, and they can pretty much contain that, but there was no way to contain it at that point. No. In, in that time period. So the mining explosion was a result of that high concentration of gas and poor ventilation. 
the official results of the inquiry uh, determined that the, the blast was a result of miners carrying open lamps in areas that were cordoned off by the fire boss. The mine's owner, the Pittsburgh Mining Company or Pittsburgh Coal Company, was not held responsible. But then it abandoned the use of those uh, open lamps after, which had already been outlawed. The open lamps had been outlawed, and the new lamps, the carbide lamps, had been introduced in 1902. So it was five years after that they finally did mm -hmm. it, but only because they had such a massive loss of life. Right. Which is just, to me, it's and, just... And we see that over and over mm -hmm. and over again in our disasters. Yeah. If there's money involved, yeah, they'll cut the corners. Yeah. And it's a, it has to be a very progressive company that thinks about its workers. Right. And for these people, workers were expendable. You could That's always right. get more. They're all coming over from Ireland and Wales and That's right. Hungary and Russia. And so, you know, if you look at it, it's really a form of slavery because these people are placed in a, in a, in a situation where they have no way out. Mm -hmm. the, the, the coal company owns the housing. The coal company owns the store. The coal company owns the ferry that crosses the river so that you can get to work. Everything is... is, is possessed by someone else and so that is a form of slavery well and then they deduct it from your pay and right. what's left right not enough to get away right mm -hmm. and yeah so the people aren't able to save anything you know they they thought oh we'll go and we'll work in the mines and we'll save money so we can have our own life mm -hmm. but a lot of times they were in such bondage to the coal company that there was no way and if you ever had any kind of a setback or an illness mm -hmm. you were totally at their mercy yeah and like i was saying in the last one the widows and orphans they had to be moved out so you could get new workers in. right Right. And so there was no, you know, no recompense for these people for all. I mean, they gave their lives, literally. Mm -hmm. I mean, they worked in these mines. The air was toxic. The coal dust was, was toxic and created black lung. It's a carcinogen. Yeah. I read a, an account yesterday about a man who was diagnosed with black lung. He'd worked in the mines all of his life. He was in his late 60s. He was diagnosed with black lung. They, he had to stop working. And then the union, the mining company, wouldn't pay him his pension because he had quit. When he, he medically, he, he had no option. He mm -hmm. couldn't work anymore, you know. And so it's just the, the devaluation of human life is just, and I mean, it happens all over the world. But it sadly, does. Uh, so anyways, back to our disaster. Mm -hmm. So um, it, was, it was the deadliest in Pennsylvania. And then, of course, I spoke about the Naomi mine, which had had, which was on December 1st, 35 miners were killed. And then it was only eight miles from the Dar mine. So they came over and did the work, and then they ended up being killed in that disaster, mm -hmm. which was just... And in the Monaga, West Virginia mine. Right. So there's, there was, in the, in the month of December, it was the deadliest month for miners. There were 700 miners that died in December of 1907. December 1st, the Naomi mine in Fayetteville, Pennsylvania, 34 or 35, I'm not sure exactly. December 6th, the Monaga Mine in West Virginia, 362 dead. December 16th, the Alande Mine in Alabama was 57 dead. In December 19th, the Dar Mine, the one we're speaking about, in Van Meter, Pennsylvania, 236 dead. And on December 31st, in the Renal Mine in Carthage, New Mexico, 11 people died. So the, the death tolls and the, the, the loss of life from the mining industry, it's a dangerous industry because you're underground, you, it's unpredictable, you know. But at the same time, there were things that had been put in place to protect people and to help them to have more safety, and the people who owned the mines didn't implement and them. And weren't compliant, that's right. Right. So 
let's just talk real quick. We find that in a lot of these disasters, there's been songs written about them. Mm -hmm. And the song, The Ballad of the Darmine, was written by Jason Hegedus, H-E-G-E-D-U-S. And he also recorded it. And then it's been recorded by Barb. So if we want, if we want to say goodbye to the folks, yes, we'll move right into letting you listen to this song. Well, we appreciate you listening to Disaster Tales. We are a listener-supported podcast. Patreon. So head us over to Patreon and give us a support. We have extra content there available, and uh, we appreciate you listening. Yep. We'll get you next month. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. Feel free to give us a rating. We'd be happy to know what you think. And here's Barb Lonsky singing The Ballad of the Darmine. In 1907, 200 miners died, sweating, toiling in the Darmine. Mothers and fathers cry like babies for the dead. St. Nicholas sighs and hangs his head. Save the mules, save the carts, save the time. Forget the men, starve for breath in the dark and lonesome mine. They don't mean as much as the money you Build your wealth upon their backs until they break You don't care how many lives it will take Save the mules, save the cards, and save the time Forget the man, starve for breath In the dark and lonesome mind Many men lay silent in an unmarked grave Loved ones gather at the church and sing and pray That souls will rise from the blackened clay Rest forever in the Lord's grace Save the mules, save the carts, save the time Forget the man, starve for bread dark and lonesome mind. Save the mules, save the carts, save the time. Forget the man, starve for breath in the dark and lonesome mind.